From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're going to be talking all things Brexit as we try and work out what the EU referendum means for the future of the United Kingdom and in the short term for the future of David Cameron. We're also going to be going back to the United States to take in the latest developments in the endlessly fascinating and occasionally terrifying race to secure the Republican presidential nomination. My special guest this week is Jeremy Cliff, who writes the influential Badgett column on British politics for The Economist. And he tells me why education is likely to be the decisive factor in determining how people vote in the European referendum. There are lots of different variables distinguishing Eurosceptics from Europhiles in Britain, but so many of them, from my perspective, have education and class at their roots. And why fear might really be the line to take. The in-campaign is being attacked for what the out-campaign has called Project Fear, fear-mongering about the risks that Britain would face outside the EU. You know, I think that that's valid in that it seems to work. We'll also be taking soundings from the streets of Cambridge about how European people actually feel. Stay with us for that and a whole lot more. First, back to America. I'm joined by our regular panellists, Helen Thompson, Aaron Rapport and Finbar Livesey. The most recent set of primaries were held in Michigan, Mississippi, Idaho and also Hawaii. I'm afraid we're not probably going to have time to get to that. We'll deal with the Republicans first. The loser unquestionably seems to have been Marco Rubio. His race may well be run. He's still hanging on for Florida next week, and we'll come back to it if he pulls something out of the bag there. It's starting to look like there are only three candidates left, Kasich, Cruz, and Trump. There is a complicated path by which Kasich winds up with the nomination, but no one can quite work out what it is. So we're getting close back to what was always the nightmare scenario for the Republican establishment they're going to have to choose. Is Ted Cruz the only person that they can rally around? And if so, can they actually bear to do it? Aaron, Ted Cruz is, in lots of ways, a very unconventional candidate for the Republican nomination. For the presidency, not least, he seems to be utterly loathed by his colleagues in the Senate and in the wider party. Is he actually a more respectable candidate than Donald Trump, as seen from the perspective of many Republicans? Yes, he is. Um, If you look at the recent CPAC conference, this conference of conservatives, uh, which meets once a year, uh, especially a big deal in presidential election years. Cruz was by far and away more popular than Trump and was in a straw poll, the most preferred candidate of the attendees of this conservative conference. And if you want to say anything about Ted Cruz, it is that he is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. If you look at, there's this kind of quirky little measure political scientists use to measure how ideologically uh, far right or far left people are on this uh, scale called DW nominate. You can Google it if you'd like. Cruz is just about as far to the right in the Senate as you can get. The ideology is not necessarily a problem. It's the way that he rubs his colleagues in the Senate and in the Republican Party more generally, calling the leader of the Senate uh, as Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell, a liar on the Senate floor, which is actually forbidden by Senate rules, working towards government shutdowns and using the debt ceiling 
serving as an ultimatum against Obama, even though a lot of his Republican colleagues thought that that was a very dangerous strategy for the party to take. Things like this uh, just rub people the wrong way, though Lindsey Graham has backed off his statement that uh, I believe he said Cruz could be murdered on the Senate floor. And if the trial was held in the Senate, nobody would convict him. So, But he still has no endorsements from any Republican in the Senate. So he's this odd combination, Helen. He's both a loose cannon and none of his colleagues trust him. On the other hand, he is an ideologue, which means you know what you're going to get. And I believe that Lindsey Graham has now said that he could work with him if he were president, because at least it would be predictable. And the fear with Trump is you don't know what you're going to get. On the other hand, if you want to turn that the other way around, that means that Trump is flexible and Cruz isn't. And so it may be that actually a President Trump would be more acceptable to a broad swathe of American opinion than a President Cruz because he's very popular with conservatives, but he is loathed by people who are anywhere else on the political spectrum. I think that that's correct. And I think if you look at it from the point of view of the Republican Party actually trying to win this presidential election, they'd be much better off picking Trump, who can appeal to centrist, independent voters, than Cruz, who hasn't got a cat in hell's chance of appealing to these people, not least because of his positions on a number of social issues, starting with abortion, where he has as hardline position as any candidate will have ever had in the entire time that abortion's been an issue in American politics. I mean, I, I would have thought that that issue alone means that he's not a viable candidate electorally from the Republican point of view. At the same time, it's clear that the Republican Party establishment simply will not tolerate Trump as the candidate, and that they don't care if the election's lost as long as Trump's not the candidate. So in that sense, I think that it's a bit more complicated game that they've got to think about is, is that Cruz is not going to have a chance of winning the election. So the question is, is do they write the election off rather than accept Trump? Is it right to say that Cruz is an ideologue and that Trump isn't? Because some of the there's a lot of critical commentary out there about Trump at the moment, including his, one of his more recent rallies where he encouraged um, the crowd to raise their hands in a gesture that looked to many people like an echo of the 1930s. Trump seems to flirt with what we think of as uber ideology, which is kinds of fascism. Yet, on the other hand, he's been a Democrat at various points in his past. He seems to chop and change on all sorts of issues. So is an ideologue someone who sticks to a set of beliefs rigidly or is an ideologue someone who flirts with fascism? I'm genuinely confused here. I think that he's ultimately flexible in the sense that... This is Trump. This is Trump, that he hasn't had any position that he hasn't actually changed his mind on several times over. And then if you look at his positions on a number of issues, starting with foreign policy, that he is significantly to the left of where the Republican Party has been. Cruz certainly isn't. He's slightly critical of aspects of neoconservative foreign policy, but only essentially about Syria. And in that sense, he is predictable, as you said earlier, from the Republican Party establishment's point of view. But there is no reason, I think, to think that somebody as ideologically committed as Cruz can be a serious electoral candidate at the general election. Someone as flexible as Trump can be. Phil, are you happy with the description of Donald Trump as a pragmatist? Uh, he's a uber pragmatist. Glibly, you could say he's an ideologue for himself, whose ideology is about Trump winning. And so <laughs> he's a Trumpist. He's a Trumpist, and so you can predict that he is going to adapt himself into the shape that's going to rile the crowd, get the most votes, bring people towards him in that populist sense. So he's a very, very difficult candidate to fight against because he is shifting his ground and he is adapting himself to what he sees as the circumstance. But the critical decision in the Republican Party, as you said, is do you decide that this 
election is one that is now written off and you're trying to save the Republican Party in some way as a coherent force? Or are you saying, no, we still want to win this election and you go with Trump and you roll the dice on whether or not that fractures the Republican Party? And it would be extraordinary if the Republican Party were going to write off an election where they are facing one of two possible candidates, Hillary Clinton, whom we know is vulnerable in lots of different ways, or still just about possibly Bernie Sanders, whom I suspect the Republican Party would normally assume that it could beat. So, Aaron, are they, are they really writing this election off? I wouldn't say that they're writing the election off, but it's interesting to me to see Republican leaders trying to have their cake and eat it too. So from a psychological perspective, I think a lot of motivated reasoning going on here, right? If we have a brokered convention, it won't be that bad and we can still move forward in the general election, right? Or if we have Cruz as a candidate, his unfavorables, which are, though not as sky high as Trump's, pretty sky high. He's about a minus 20, meaning 20% more people view him unfavorably than favorably. Which in a two-horse race is not going to be good. Which in a two-horse race is certainly not good, right? Even in a one-horse race, you can see that horse (laughs) breaking its leg somewhere along the way. Sorry to any animal lovers out there. And so uh, there is, in a way, to an objective observer, one can say, right, if you shoot for a brokered convention, that is writing off this election. But I don't think in the minds of a lot of Republican leaders, they are there yet, if for no other reason than they can't mentally cope with that kind of baggage. Uh, Similarly, uh, I think there was a lot of denial for a long time that Trump had a plausible route towards the election, even though it was clear to a lot of people that this was a distinct as in greater than 50% chance possibility. I'm sure one of the reasons that they aren't writing it off is what's happening in the Democratic race, which, as we've said, doesn't get nearly as much attention as the Republican race, but in lots of ways, it's just as interesting. And in the recent rounds of primaries, that's where the big surprise was, which is that Bernie Sanders won in Michigan. And he outperformed the polls by somewhere between 15 and 20%, which is showing that in some states still, not in the South, but in some states still, the polls are not capturing Sanders' support. Finbar, the one thing that he had in common with the other winner in Michigan, which is Donald Trump, is they both are running on very strongly anti-free trade platforms. And this clearly does have a very large bipartisan appeal in a swathe of American states, including some of the big ones that are coming up, like Ohio. I mean, is this the real story at the moment of this campaign, just how strong that appeal is to a lot of voters? I think it's a huge story in the sense of the disaffection within the American population generally. It's that strange moment when you go around the circle from Trump and you end up back at Sanders. They meet at the back end because of this disaffected set of voters. So one of the issues for Sanders is that um, he's running an inclusive campaign, but it looks like this anti-free trade, this protectionist vote is predominantly white. And so to have general appeal, how does he broaden that out? But it's really interesting that this dynamic brings Trump and Sanders together. And if that were the matchup, how would those votes split? Helen, were you surprised that Sanders is still competitive in this race? Not everywhere. He was absolutely hammered in Mississippi. But... It's definitely not over. Even a week ago, there was talk from the Hillary Clinton camp that it was time for him to fold his tent and go home nicely. He's not going anywhere. I think the surprising thing is is that Michigan is a state that by northern standards, I mean by that non-southern standards, has a quite significant African-American population. And in that sense, it didn't look particularly propitious territory for him. And it also may that also may explain the problem with the polling um, there. But actually, although he lost the African-American vote severely, he lost it by 30 points, that's nothing like he's been losing it in the southern states. That suggests that 
outside the South, the African-American vote isn't as monolithic as it looked previously. And that is a significant change in this race because the African-American vote has been Hillary's bulwark so far. And if that fractures somewhat and the Southern contests are almost over, then this race is very much open. And Erin, is that because there are parts of the North where this protectionist message does have an appeal across the board? that there are people from all communities and all walks of life who feel genuinely that globalisation, free trade and so on has been bad for them, that it's a different story in the North and in the South. Part of the country, the United States, that has been hit hardest by deindustrialization has been the so-called Rust Belt, uh, which is predominantly in the old manufacturing sectors in the North and uh, the mid-Atlantic parts of the country as well. So in answer to your question, yes, I think that is certainly something that characterizes northern sectors of the country more than it does the South. And as a result of this, you're going to see greater support for an anti-free trade candidate. Another thing to remember is that manufacturing has come back in a way in the United States in the South in a lot of states where uh, union protection rights are very weak. You have so-called freedom to work laws uh, that make it much harder to unionize. While the rate of union workers in the United States has dropped precipitously since the second half of the 20th century. It's especially, I think, dropped off in the South, whereas uh, there are still strong vestiges of uh, union workers in auto manufacturing, especially uh, still within the North and the Midwest. We're going to come back to this next week when we will know the results from Florida and Ohio, and almost certainly for some of the reasons that we've just discussed, that's not going to settle anything because Florida and Ohio are very, very different kinds of states. Marco Rubio may get another kiss of life in Florida. He may not. I think what happens in Ohio is going to be really interesting for the future of this race and for some of the issues that we just talked about here. Somehow it always seems to come back to Ohio. A few weeks ago I said it always comes back to Florida. It's one or the other. We'll talk about it next week. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Now we turn our attention to the vote that currently looms large over British and much of European politics. The referendum on the 23rd of June that will decide whether the UK stays inside the European Union. Lizzie Presser went onto the streets of Cambridge to ask people whether the city feels more European than other parts of the United Kingdom. Well, I mean, we just oozing with people of all sorts of different nationalities, whether that's academics in the university, tourists, visitors... I've worked for high-tech companies in the area and the reason we set up the companies here was because there's lots of intelligent technical people here and a successful company, you know, travel a lot all over Europe doing business. I just see us as European, I just feel European. It would be absolutely insane to leave the EU. Yes, because as a leading city we attract European academics so you soon get used to hearing the different languages. I'm pragmatic about this, I mean... I'm really not sure. What I don't like is the scaremongering. I've never seen this in British politics before. Instead of emphasising we should stay in because this is how it will help, we're getting a negative one and it's a bit like politics in America where they fight dirty. There's a lot of international students, so in that way, yeah. Because I'm a student, I see that academia is very international and I think about exchange programmes and that kind of thing and how easily accessible they are because we're in the EU. And I think that that makes me even stronger in my opinion that we should stay in the EU. 
I would say it's quite European, right, because we have quite a cosmopolitan inhabitants, really. Yeah, I used to teach economics, so, you know, I see the economic points of views, the single market and how it has, uh, you know, effectively helped trade. And perhaps our trade is taking a different direction these days, so we're looking sort of more global rather than just European. So that's why I'm still undecided. Definitely, it's like multicultural. Yeah, it's going to be definitely more European than, than any other. Well, maybe London as well, or Oxford. I'm Polish, so for me, open borders and European Union, I guess it's a good thing. And English benefit a lot from people, especially Polish, coming over here. People are afraid of different migrants coming over now. But I think it was like with Polish people 10 years ago. Everybody was afraid of it. People used to say that we take the jobs and we're destroying the country, but now it's all good and they're all happy with us. I was joined earlier this week by Jeremy Cliff, who's written a fascinating series of articles in The Economist about the referendum and its likely impact on British politics. In one, he contrasted attitudes to Europe in Cambridge to how people feel in Peterborough, just 30 miles away, two similar-sized towns in the same county, yet for the purposes of this referendum they might as well belong to different universes. I asked Jeremy Cliff to explain why. Well, the idea came to me when I heard an anecdote from Julian Huppert, who used to be the Liberal Democrat MP for Cambridge, who described two debates at which he'd spoken on the European Union. And the first was in Cambridge, where he said at the end they did a show of hands to take people's views on the EU and found that it was overwhelmingly pro-European. I think he said it was something like 300 to about six. And then he had a similar debate in Peterborough, you know, just up the road, as you say, a similar sized town, like Cambridge, a place that's growing quite fast, has a broadly white collar economy. And yet just the complete opposite. For me, it crystallised what is, in many respects, at the root of Britain's divide on Europe, which is class and qualifications. That's the thing that differentiates these two cities, and I think that's the thing that explains why they have such different outlooks on Europe. And by qualifications, you mean essentially educational experience. Exactly. I mean, Cambridge is a university town, but more broadly than that, people who live in Cambridge are much more likely to have been to university to have various kinds of educational qualifications. Precisely. So so how does that play out in relation to Europe, because it's not completely obvious that education should just lead to a straightforward divide as to whether the EU is a good or a bad idea. Yeah, and you're right to say that it's not just because it's a university city, it's not just the fact there are lots of students and academics. It's right across the board in Cambridge. Cambridge is a very high-skill economy. I think about one in two residents here went to university, and you know the numbers who didn't go to university but continued in education through to 18 or beyond is also above average, as opposed to in Peterborough, which is very much a school leavers city, a place where people left at 16 and went straight into the labour market. And I think that drives people's views on Europe in a number of ways. The first is that there seems to be a bit of mystery about what being at university for three or four years does to make people so much more, you might say, cosmopolitan in their outlook, liberal. But what happens afterwards is very easy to understand. People who've been to university command higher wages, they can adapt better to a globalised economy, they have skills that are marketable in a way that those who didn't go to university don't. And the Cambridge economy is the encapsulation of that. You know, it's laboratories, it's high-tech firms, it's Microsoft, it's AstraZeneca. So it perfectly sums up the way that having gone to university enables you to capture the benefits of globalisation 
So do you think that explanation also helps to account for the other big divide? There's the Cambridge-Peterborough divide. There's also the generational divide. From what we can see from the polling, we don't know for sure. But certainly it seems to be the case that people over 50 and particularly over 65 are much more Eurosceptic than young people. So sometimes this is just thought to be sort of world view and cultural experience. But of course, the expansion of university education has only really affected the most recent generation very, very many fewer people aged 50 and over went to university than 40 and under. Precisely. And, you know, you look at the post-war years, it was something like 5% of people went to university. Today, it's nearer 50. And that has to be an overwhelming part of the explanation for the generational divide, which is why if it were just up to those under 30, under 40, Britain would easily vote to stay in the European Union, there'd be no doubt about it. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I focus so much on qualification and sort of professional status, because there are lots of different variables distinguishing Eurosceptics from Europhiles in Britain. But so many of them, from my perspective, have education and class at their roots. So, you know, the fact that broadsheet readers are more likely to be pro-European, the fact that people in the middle class are more likely to be pro-European than than those in working class, the fact that people's views on immigration seem to correlate very closely, extremely closely, actually, with their views on Europe. I mean, that's a perfect example of the knock-on effects of this educational divide. If you have a, a university degree, if you can command a certain wage level, if you have that stability and that certainty in the labour market, you feel a lot less threatened by immigrants from other European countries. You know, they are more colleagues or, or people that you hire to kind of clean your house rather than a direct threat to you as a wage earner. The other thing that the younger generation and therefore by extension people who went to university don't do is they don't vote nearly as much as the older generation do. And there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment around how to read the polling Mm. for this referendum, because if it follows the pattern of the general election, the Eurosceptics are more likely to turn out. And also, as you just described it, there is more passion on the sceptical side, whether it's driven by fear. I mean, the, the emotions are probably negative ones, but nonetheless, because the case that you just made for the people who are happy to remain is basically they're just happy to remain. Yeah. It's not that they're driven by a sense of anxiety or they want something to happen. Do you think that it's not a level playing field when it comes to what might actually happen in the vote here? That actually what we're looking at, it's not Cambridge versus Peterborough, but actually that it may be that Peterborough wins not because it's Peterborough, but because these demographics favour the, the out in terms of voting patterns. To some extent. On the other hand, those who are in middle class groups are more likely to vote than those in working class groups, and they also tend to be more pro-European. So perhaps that will counterbalance the age effect. But it's certainly true that there is an asymmetry in terms of passion. And you see that in the two campaigns at the very top, the difference between the sort of fire in the eyes of a Nigel Farage or a a Michael Gove compared to the, the cool as a cucumber, rational, measured voice of someone like Alan Johnson or or even David Cameron. And that goes all the way down those movements. Now, there is a a flip side to that comparison, which is that the out campaign is more, because of that passion, perhaps, the out campaign is more chaotic, more disparate. Message control is less of a strength, whereas in the in campaign, what they don't have in passion, they make up for in, in a more, perhaps a more coherent approach. Do you think, given what you've described are a series of underlying structural and demographic causes for the way that people are likely to vote in this, that the campaign is actually going to make a lot of difference. In the political science study of electoral campaigns that tend to focus on general elections, there is a conventional wisdom that actually campaigning doesn't matter that much. That There's a sort of second level conventional wisdom, which is that campaigns do change people's minds, but then they change back in the polling booth. So yes, yes, there's a lot of churn during the campaign, but the result is probably set one or two or more months in advance. 
there's a lot of anxiety around these campaigns and a feeling that lots of votes are up for grabs. But on the sort of Cambridge Peterborough analysis, it sounds like certain things are fairly set. I didn't realise there was a sort of academic literature supporting this idea that you can overestimate the importance of campaigning. And that is certainly a lesson that we in the commentariat learned at the last election. You know, you can get so absorbed in the colour and the pantomime of the campaign that you miss the bigger mega trends, the bigger frame in which the, upper, the election's operating. And it's clear that many of us overlooked the importance of those big systemic fundamentals last time. You know, which prospective prime minister do people trust? Who do they trust in the economy? Does and who's going to turn there? out? And who's, and who's going to turn out exactly and all of those it turned out made a very crisp and clear argument for the Conservatives winning a majority actually that very few of us actually saw as we approached the referendum every single piece of news every single endorsement or declaration or, or Boris Gaff Boris yeah. Gaff all these things will be anatomized to within an inch of their life by the commentariat and I guess the risk is that we do miss these big trends big differences like the Cambridge Peterborough comparison like the fact that younger voters the the central bastion of the pro-European vote are less likely to turn out. The demographic splits here are very clear, very strong, and are unlikely to be overturned, however sort of enthusiastic a, a campaign on either side. One thing that might matter is how Labour play it, though, because in your column this week, you point out that though the Tory party seems to be split down the middle and there's a kind of proxy civil war going on, when you look at the bigger picture, actually the party as a whole has moved, even from the Thatcher period to now, in a Eurosceptic direction. And it slightly reflects what we were talking earlier, that there's more passion on the sceptical side. The case to stay in is fairly pragmatic. It's often the time's not right. Let's calm down a bit. On the Labour side, Labour supporters do seem to be, partly for the demographic reasons we discussed, more pro-European. But the Labour leadership is, at best, ambivalent about this, and at worst, outright hostile. And if Labour voters don't turn out the Remain campaign has got a real problem. So how do you see that playing out? I mean, do you think that Labour is committed to winning this referendum for the Remain side? And if so, how can it persuade its supporters? I think that's that's a good question because, I mean, notwithstanding what we just said about the relative significance of campaigning, what the last election did teach us was that even if you can't change the fundamentals, mobilising your vote is an important part of election campaigning. And yes, David Cameron had all these, these structural advantages, but he also deployed the right issues, the right dividing lines, um, under the, the guiding influence of Linton Crosby, his Australian campaigns guru, to get people out. And often they were negative. Often they were fear-driven. So, for example, the idea that Labour would put the Scottish Nationalists into office. And I think the same is important in this campaign too. You know, the in-campaign is being attacked for what the out-campaign has called project fear, fear-mongering about the risks that Britain would face outside the EU. I think that that's valid in that it seems to work. You know, you people may incline one way or the other, but to actually get them to leave their house, go to the polling station and make the cro- cross in the box is another matter. And that's where the Labour Party's divisions are a concern for the inside, because you you may have voters who kind of buy the left-wing case for Britain to be in the European Union, that case that has motivated the party's pro-Europeanism ever since the late 80s. But you have a leader in Jeremy Corbyn and those around him who are at best ambivalent, and I suspect deep down are, are actively pro-Brexit. You know, Jeremy Corbyn sees the European Union as a, as a vessel of globalisation, as a body that would tie his hands if he became Prime Minister and prevent him from doing some of the, the things that he wants to do. The best that the pro-Europeans in Labour have managed to do is just tell them to pipe down about it. And that could make a difference, I think, in terms of the importance of mobilising, actually getting people out the door, uh, whatever their views are in the first place. The other party that has a complicated 
strategic set of choices to face here as the SNP. They're in many ways the most vocally and passionately pro-European party. I mean, the Liberal Democrats are too, but they're not playing much of a role here. On the other hand, SNP voters may have all sorts of good reasons for not being too heartbroken if David Cameron loses this referendum, because that is the door to another Scottish independence referendum. So how do you see the SNP playing it? Nicola Sturgeon, to me, does sound, she doesn't sound ambivalent. She does sound fully committed to the idea of the European Union and Britain's continued membership of it. But there must be some part of her that's already strategizing her option. I think it's what, is it, is it what Marxists call revolutionary pessimism? It's a bit like those lefties who cheered on um, George W. Bush in the American election because the feeling was it would make the status quo so intolerable. But Bernie some, Sanders would be president well, one perhaps, day. Perhaps that's, 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 that's a separate discussion. But I, I can see on the part of the, the SNP, they may be convinced pro-Europeans. And they are, you know, they, they have always talked about Scotland joining the Brotherhood of Nordic Nations. But... To make the case for in, for another independence referendum is not easy these days. The old price has fallen way below the level at which an independent Scotland's books would balance. And even during the election campaign last year, Nicola Sturgeon was very cagey about when or why she might hold a new referendum. I, I pushed it on her myself. But the one circumstance she would name in which she said there would be a case for a new vote would be if Britain left the EU, because Scotland will probably vote to stay in the EU. If England drags Scotland out, then there will be a case for a new independence referendum. And in fact, she said that so many times now. And so have other big cheeses in the SNP that I think she'd actually struggle not to push forward on that. So not only is Britain voting on it, the sort of country that it wants to be, the sort of role it wants to play in the world from that external perspective, but it's also voting perhaps on its future, the future shape of the British Union. And there is another scenario, which these things are relatively unlikely. It's easy to sort of imagine them and then turns out that the world is simpler than this but there's a scenario in which Scotland drags Britain back in in a sense in that England votes to leave but it's a very fine vote Scotland votes to say and suddenly English nationalism which is something that people talk about a lot but it's quite hard to pin down has a reason to have a very very serious grievance that would also have profound implications for the future of the UK I take it. Right this is the new shape of British politics if you look at the electoral map now you have a Scottish Scotland which is completely yellow, completely SNP, and, and an English England, which is almost completely conservative. And they are sort of evolving into almost national parties. And what's notable about the Eurosceptic parts of England, and Petersburg is a perfect example of this, is that the more Eurosceptic an area, the more people feel on the wrong end of these sort of great globalising trends, the more likely they are to describe themselves as English as opposed to British. And the distinction between those two identities, I think, sums up a lot of these demographic trends in that Englishness, for better or worse, has come to be a more exclusive identity than Britishness. Britishness is a more pluralistic identity. And I think it's an expression of that, that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense of being left behind. And so precisely if that scenario which you describe arises in which pro-European Scotland may be joined by Northern Ireland and Wales and and maybe London, which really isn't England for our purposes here, um, if if those sort of more left-leaning pro-European parts of the country dragged... And Cambridge, and Cambridge, I think, is one of these other islands of Europe. If the sort of the Celtic fringes plus cosmopolitan England, if you want to call it that, drag out the rest of England, the the politics of that could become particularly difficult, especially within the Conservative Party. I think that... It would be completely intolerable for most of the Conservative base and perhaps even most of David Cameron's MPs. I mean, presumably it would also be pretty hard for Labour as well because Labour have a difficulty outside of these metropolitan or cosmopolitan areas extending their appeal and there'll be a lot of angry people. It does seem to create an opportunity for UKIP if they were to get their act together. Do you think that 
the Conservative Party would be able to, under a new leader, reposition itself so as to be a vehicle for some of this anger and some of this resentment. Because someone is going to have to represent the very, very many angry Eurosceptics, if this is a Remain vote, who will feel that they have not had their voice heard. It's not clear to me who it's going to be. No, and one can construct a number of different scenarios in which different parties divide up that that vote in different ways. I suppose sort of Boris Johnson's great strategy is that Britain votes to leave the European Union or doesn't, but either way, it leaves behind a sort of residual dissatisfaction and anger on the part of Eurosceptics in and outside the Conservative Party that can be moulded into an election-winning coalition. I mean, I wonder if that's really realistic. I can see how his Eurosceptic stance, whether sincere or not, can carry him to the Conservative Party leadership. But the sort of parts of the country where you get that real sort of working-class Eurosceptic alienation from the political establishment then it's not like Labour is losing its votes there to the Conservatives. It's losing them to UKIP and to the non-voting column. And that's a pattern that's true across Europe, of course, in declining industrial areas and on the edges of big cities across the continent. The shift is conventionally social democrat to non-voter to populist, not to a Christian Democrat centre-right party. The other scenario being David Cameron is succeeded by another person in his mould, and the familiar strategy that worked last time, which is to assume that that whole part of the political landscape is fragmented, it's harder to hold it together, and a core conservative vote, a mainstream conservative vote, under a first-past-the-post system should always be enough. Yeah. That's it. And I think insofar as Cameron has succeeded in, in his project to modernise the party and, you know, and he, he has just won a majority, it has been to recast the Tory party as something like a big tent movement. You know, the Conservative Party speaks to groups now that it could never have spoken to under previous leaders. You know, it is winning an ever larger share of the ethnic minority vote. That's also reflected on its parliamentary benches. It's winning over some parts of the younger urban Britain, you know, its, it's support among sort of gay voters, for example, is on the rise. Now, that is the only way the Conservatives can hold on to power for a, lot, for a long period of time. Eventually, there will be a, a competitive political force, and the Conservatives can only hang on to their current preeminence, I think, by being that big tent, dare I say it, one nation party. Herring off after disgruntled UKIP voters is not the way to, to stay in power. I was very struck by a conversation I had with a uh, member of the current government. I won't name her, the minister who told me that she just paid her first visit to Newcastle-upon-Tyne and was struck by the fact that it was full of Tories. And I said, really? She said, yes, they just don't know it yet. And I thought, you'd never hear a Labour person saying that about yeah. sort of South Cambridgeshire or... It, there's a complete difference of ambition. The left, the left seeks traitors, the right seeks converts. Exactly, and there was, there was this sort of jolly enthusiasm about it, what fun it would be to campaign yeah. in Newcastle. You'd never hear someone in the present Labour Party thinking it would be fun to campaign in those seats that aren't going to vote Labour. Um, and there is an imbalance there. That Labour does have a problem, um, a problem in a sense of, it doesn't have a problem of intellectual ambition, but it has a problem of electoral ambition, I think. Completely. And you know, the number of right-wing Labour MPs, moderate Labour MPs, whatever you want to call them, who are kicking themselves for not getting to the northern powerhouse agenda before George Osborne did. You know, you can debate how how authentic his talk about sort of building a big northern counterweight to London actually is. But the fact is that he's parked his tanks on Labour's lawn. He's taken, he's, he's moving into territory that Labour used to hold. And although this referendum is a, is a giant and very unproductive distraction from this great project of Cameron's, until, you know, a few weeks ago, 
when everything was swallowed up by the Europe question. Cameron was, every Monday, you may have noticed, he was making an announcement, a policy announcement or a speech that worked on a topic that is not traditionally owned by the Conservatives, so mental health, social mobility, gender equality. Again, how authentic this is, how substantive it is, we can debate. But the fact is that they are positioning themselves as a more centrist party, actually in a way that other centre-right parties have across Europe, you know, Merkel, Sweden in the last in the last decade, Denmark to some extent today. There is something about the centre-right across Europe that is perhaps... I don't know, a bit more electorally realistic than, than, than the centre-left in many of these countries. And of course, Labour in Britain is the perfect example of that. It's a defensive party these days in almost every respect. And every Monday, Jeremy Corbyn has been avoiding going to meet the Parliamentary Precisely. Labour Party because they won't talk about the things he wants to talk about. They might actually talk about off-piste about some issues that he's not comfortable There's with. There's an amazing symmetry, yes. It's how David Cameron and Jeremy Corbyn have spent their Mondays for the last few months tells us a great deal about the different fortunes of the two parties. So someone pointed out the difference between David Cameron and Ed Miliband. When negative polling or negative focus group data was brought to David Cameron, he said, you have to, and his phrase was, physically attack me with the right lines. You know, he was offended by the fact that voters didn't see him in the right light and was sort of desperate to do something about it. Ed Miliband, when they brought him bad polling numbers, said, do you have to be so negative? And again, there's just a sort of a, a difference in mentality you know, to kind of return to our main subject here. If Conservatives on either side of the European debate are looking for reasons to be optimistic about the party's ability to pull together after the, what is a very bruising few months ahead for the party, it's the fact that the party has in the last few years shown a fairly ruthless ambition to win elections and to kind of move into ground that it doesn't currently hold. And as long as that survives the next few months, the party can probably count on winning the next election and maybe the one after that at this rate. And you say the last few years, some people say the last few hundred years, they've shown, they've shown that. So two final questions, one fairly prosaic in short term and one much broader. The practical question is, though, as you say, there are reasons for Conservatives to be optimistic the future for David Cameron does, on many scenarios, look difficult after this referendum. If he loses it, obviously very difficult. But even if he wins it, given the, the nature of the discontent there will be in this within the Conservative Party, I mean, is there a smooth exit for him now or is it just going to be choppy from here on in? I think it, it will certainly be difficult. And I don't buy this idea that he can serenely stay on if there's a no vote. I mean, it's true that he, he remains an asset to his party. The honeymoon of his electoral win has not quite faded. But you, you have to think, what's the priority of a prime minister after an outvote going to be? It's going to be negotiating Britain's exit from the U European Union. Now, how he could do that, having just led the campaign for Britain to stay in, I don't, I don't really understand. So I don't think he can stay if he loses. As for the, the scenario in which he wins... I think it will it will be difficult. You know, more of his MPs have come out for Brexit than many of us anticipated a few months ago. Perhaps the pro-Brexit vote for some of these MPs is a bit like the gateway drug to further rebellions. You know, they say that once MPs taste the, the thrill of rebellion the first time, they're, they're more likely to rebel again. So it could be that he leads a more fractious party. There will be recriminations. Already we're seeing this a sort of sense of grievance and victimhood from the out campaign, including from MPs who previously were very loyal to David Cameron. So it won't be easy. That said, there is evidence that the ground is being laid for a reconciliation. You know, it's notable that the day after he announced that he was going to campaign for Brexit, Michael Gove was invited to dinner with George Osborne. So lines of communication are being kept open. Um, and Boris will be sacrificed in some... Well, Boris, I don't, think can, I don't think can count on a minister, a big ministerial job after the election, put it, put it like that. The powers of patronage are still at Cameron's disposal, so I think it will be rough for him. But don't underestimate 
the lingering authority that his political preeminence gives him. In some ways, his greatest instrument in bringing the Tory party back together is Jeremy Corbyn. The prospect of another election victory under whichever leader in 2020 will, I think, make it a lot easier for him to bring the party back together. And plus, he will have won again. I mean, his record will be remarkable. Exactly. Scotland, the general election, this. Yeah. That gives you authority in any democratic system. Precisely. And he'll be able to say, you may not like me, but you have to respect me. And uh, there's something to be said for that. And the the much bigger question, to go back to the Cambridge Peterborough point, and and something that you said in, in your very interesting column on this, which is that in the long, long term, Britain's future looks much more like Cambridge than it does like Peterborough. There may be quite a lot of disruption and difficulty along the way, but as we're, that's the way that we're heading. Why? Because we're going to be better educated? Because the future just is better? Are you, are you just a progressive optimist? Why? I guess there's a, there's a dash of optimism in there. But if you look at all the long-term trends, the growth and the rise of, of the cities, the growth in the university-educated population, you know, the number of people starting university each year is about the same size as the population of the average constituency. You only need to sort of, you know, to trace that forward 10, 20, 30 years to see the effect that will have on the, the, the outlook of the electorate. And just the, the emergence of a more mixed, more multicultural, almost more American society the shift in a more liberal direction on attitudes towards various social questions is another example. And all of these trends together point towards a Britain that looks, uh, that is always going to be divided, but will look a lot more like Cambridge or London or Brighton or Oxford or Manchester. What now look like outposts of a, a liberal elite, if you want to use the American phrase. And in that respect, questions like immigration, like Europe, all these sort of culture wars sort of issues that seem to be bubbling up increasingly now, I think could end up being resolved by the great kind of demographic and economic wheels turning. I think that it's very important to keep all of those trends in mind, certainly for the political parties as they debate how to bring together a population split on all these on all these questions. You know, this split is not static. It's a process. And you have to think long and hard about where that process is taking you in the long term. And if Britain did vote to leave the European Union, if Peterborough beat Cambridge, would that be only a tiny little dent in your optimism or might it significantly challenge your view of the future? Not particularly. I mean, obviously, Europe is changing a lot. So we don't know what being part of the European Union in 10 or 20 years would look like. But I think it's entirely conceivable that Britain could vote to leave the European Union and then rejoin at some point in the future. So yes, it would be a blow to the idea that Britain is moving in what I consider a cosmopolitan direction. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't completely kill the idea. Thank you to Jeremy Cliff. Our friends from the Jack Hunt School in Peterborough have been listening to this discussion, and not surprisingly, they have fairly strong views of their own. You can find out more at our website. Just visit us at Election Politics Podcast. Now back to our panel, where we're joined once again by Chris Brooke. Chris, in my conversation there with Jeremy Cliff, we touched on the difficult challenges that both the SNP and Labour face in this referendum, where there ought to be a lot of conviction in favour of staying in Europe, but then there are also some tactical and strategic questions about what result they actually want, and some slightly mixed signals coming out to their supporters. On the whole, people don't think about tactical voting in referendums, that's meant to be for general elections, but do you think that there's a possibility in this referendum that people are going to think tactically, so not directly answer the question, but give the answer they think will produce the secondary effect they want? I think there certainly will be some of it, but it's difficult to know quite where it's going to come from and in what kind of quantities and what the politicians can do to 
steer people towards thinking like that. And then you get multiple ironies or paradoxes that there may very well be some Scottish nationalists who will vote uh, to exit because they think that's the quickest way to break up the United Kingdom and keep Scotland inside the Union. But of course, the more Scots who do that, the more it undermines Nicola Sturgeon's claim for a second referendum, which precisely turns on the idea that a lot more people in England compared with Scotland may be voting for exit. And then, of course, if there are any Scots who are doing that, they may be counterbalanced by English voters who don't much like the idea of Scottish independence, who have extraordinarily mixed feelings about the European Union, but will vote for the status quo because they're afraid of the consequences that follow. And that would be an effect that would boost the English Remain vote, which would then also undermine the effect that would justify Nicola Sturgeon's call for an immediate second referendum on independence. So that is a complicated message to convey to your supporters. Absolutely. In a way, what you've said, the only people it really makes sense for are English people living in Scotland or Scottish people living in England, because they'll be counted as English or Scottish, and and that's a pretty small proportion of the relative populations. Helen, Labour also have a complicated game to play here. There does seem to be actually, in this case, quite a lot of conviction among the Labour leadership in favour of leaving the European Union, but they, they have to mute that and indeed they have to pretend that they don't have that in order to try to hold the line on this. Do you think they are going to be able to hold the line for the next three plus months? I think that Corbyn's really got no choice but to hold the line because if he doesn't hold the line, then he's going to be out because I think that it's the one thing that's completely unacceptable to the senior people around him would be for him to come out and say that or even to be half-hearted in his support for staying inside the European Union. That is the senior people around him who are members of Parliament. His team, if anything, are probably more Eurosceptic than he is. Certainly, but I think that he would be facing a coup pretty quickly. I think the problem is, is, is that in order for the referendum to be won, then Labour has to do some kind of mobilisation job of its votes, particularly in the North, and it's not clear that the Labour Party is in a fit state to be able to do that, and that will potentially have consequences for the outcome of the referendum. I heard that the way that people were thinking around Corbyn was the one message they can get him to say with conviction, because he believes in peace, that's one of his things, he's against war and in favour of peace, is if they can get him out there and say that Europe and the European Union has held the peace since the Second World War, he can actually sound like he means it. But that's, to me, a fairly weak argument for remaining in the European Union, because it's not clear that the European Union is what's kept the peace, Aaron, for the last 70 years. No, the European Union has coincided with several phenomena in the 20th century that have arguably kept the peace better, uh, including nuclear weapons. Of course, you're not going to give a Nobel Peace Prize to the hydrogen bomb anytime. And also, you're not going to get Jeremy Corbyn saying with conviction that that's what kept the peace, nor NATO, indeed. That's why this is such a mess for him. Certainly not. But yes, if he was going to make an argument for staying in that could sound consistent with his previous record, he could take again the bold stance that peace is better than war and argue that uh, the European Union strongly correlates with said peace. One thing that's really striking about this referendum is that it comes in a, a, a series of votes the Scottish referendum, the general election, this referendum, then there's the possibility of another Scottish referendum. And then if people like Boris Johnson were to be allowed to let it play out like this, then maybe a second European referendum. 
Once upon a time, referendums were very, very rare in British politics. And the point about them is they were meant to be outside the normal run of particularly party politics and an opportunity to settle a question, maybe for a generation, which in a way the previous EU referendum or European community referendum did back in the 1970s. But when they come in a a pattern like this, it's almost impossible for voters not to think, not what is my answer to this question, but how is my answer to this question going to affect the next vote that I'm going to be asked to take a view on? It seems to me that we're in a different world now where referendums fold into the routine of party politics, Helen. So it's much harder to settle a question. I think that that's true, but I don't think in the end there was any alternative but to having a referendum on the European Union. You can argue about whether this is the right time to have it this referendum, not least when there's so much uncertainty about what's going to happen in French and German politics over the next few years. But it's pretty clear if you look at what happened, particularly from 2004 onwards and the way in which the entrance of the East European states in the European Union was dealt with in Britain by the Blair government in relation to free movement of labour, that there was a breakdown or at least a partial breakdown of consent to British membership of the European Union in its present form amongst a significant section of voters and that that was having some fairly poisonous effects on the body politic and that in some sense that has to be let out of the system to get past that. And In that sense I think it had something of the same effect as what Iraq did in terms of poisoning the body politics in the middle of the 2000s. The referendum is a way of doing that. At the same time it is not a very good time to be trying to work out what Britain's relationship to the European Union should be because of everything that's happening within the European Union itself. And Chris, is it the coincidence then of the Scottish referendum and the EU referendum coming so close together that really gives this a different kind of flavour? Because as Helen said, there isn't a case for saying that something like this had to happen at some point because there had possibly been a breakdown of the usual channels of political representation on this question, but it does now just cut across so many other issues. There's certainly been uh, a kind of fantasy among some people in British politics that referendums would become quite routine, and in particular this idea that you can't really have things that uh, affect the constitution that change the rules of the political game unless they're ratified by referendum. And we have seen a number of referendums, sometimes often quite local, about changing government in London, or should there be a regional assembly for the North East, or what about the Good Friday Agreement, or what about the Scottish Parliament... But we're still not really moving, I think, to the kind of situation you get in some American states where you get annual plebiscites on propositions and there are mechanisms that bypass the usual parliamentary channels for getting them on the ballot paper. And the crucial thing there is citizens get to suggest the questions they want to be put, which is not the case here. And it's that model that seems to me a recipe for really, really bad government when there's an odd and awkward division of labour between what the politicians are doing and what the voters are doing and nothing good tends to come of it. In this country, it is these two referendums that are commanding attention, the Scottish referendum and now the European referendum. And of course, there is then the prospect of a further Scottish referendum that may depend on the result of this one. That's what's making things complicated. It doesn't look to me as if we're heading for a world in which referendums will, in the future, be expected to be as regular as they are now. It's an odd moment. Of course, the referendum on Europe may not settle the issue, just as the Scottish referendum did not settle settle the issue. But we're not yet in a world, I think, where referendums will be the norm rather than the exception. Erin, are you a referendum fan? When people try and say something in favour, they often point to Switzerland, although I'm not sure Switzerland is a great advert for democratic politics. But when they want to say that referendums are a bad idea, like Chris, they point to California, um, which does have some problems with its politics. 
Is, is California the, the, the nightmarish future that a referendum-driven world points towards? Yes, the Californian dystopia. No, I am not a fan of referendums or referenda. And granted, this is coming from a U.S.-centric perspective, but what am I here for if not to offer a U.S.-centric perspective? Uh, in my mind, referendum as a class, rather than specific referendums, uh, do a couple of things. One, they make it harder to hold elected officials accountable. So it's a way of elected officials shirking their duties. Uh, two, it's oftentimes a way for uh, critics of the judicial branch to bludgeon the judicial branch of government. So, for example, if you have what is going to clearly be based on existing jurisprudence, an unconstitutional referenda on, say, gay marriage, and it passes overwhelmingly, and then the courts overturn it, that leads to a populist's upswell against uh, the courts. And three, you have a tendency for voters who are even lower information uh, policy analysts say then it's very polite way of putting it. Uh, low information policy analysts than uh, state legislators uh, voting on issues where they really might not have a strong background and call me an elitist but that is not my preference um, we should remember what the origins of the word democracy are if you break it down it's ruled by the demos which of course can roughly be translated to the mob uh, which is why we instead tend to delegate our political responsibilities in republics finally helen and chris i'll ask you both this um picking up on what aaron said just there one of the things that referendums do is they pose a populist challenge to the power of the courts and of the judiciary and that certainly seems to be a subtext in the EU referendum in that part of what's driving this is a fear that British parliamentary sovereignty has been usurped by European legal institutions. So are we seeing, is that one way in which we're getting a little echo of how this plays out in the United States, that actually one of the things that's going on here is not mob politics, but democratic politics and judicial politics? I think it is, but I think it's also playing out on the other side because one of the arguments of those who want to stay in, who are addressing one of the questions that Cameron himself raised about the problems of staying in in terms of his renegotiation, which is the position of the city in relation to qualified majority voting on financial services issue, the argument there for staying in and saying that the city's interest can be protected is essentially, look, we might get outvoted, but the European Court of Justice will protect us in the end. And the last big decision about this was indeed won by the British case in the European Court of Justice. So in the end, you can't get around this judicial politics question because it plays out on both sides of the picture. And some issues about Britain's membership of the European Union that are problematic from British government's point of view are going to rest on what the court decides. And in the long term, or in the medium term even, that's going to continue to pose problems for Britain's membership of the European Union. So Chris, is this one of the problems with the current wave of populism, is that it wants to take power back from legal institutions, but it's not coming back? There's certainly populism at work here. Whether it's populism specifically targeted at legal institutions, I'm not so sure. There's hardly anyone who can name a single case decided by the European Court of Justice. And insofar as there is a kind of populist mood that some of the right-wing papers try to mobilise, it's directed against the decisions of the Strasbourg Court, the um, European Court of uh, Human Rights. And of course, what's striking about that is it's not actually a formal European Union institution. And so Brexit does not settle that question. Absolutely. 
So insofar as there is a populist concern about sovereignty, I think people have this sense that it's what the Council of Ministers is doing, it's what the European Commission is doing, it's these decisions that are made at intergovernmental conferences by qualified majority voting. That, I think, is the far more visible side of European institutions that people kick against. But sure, yes, the European Court of Justice, you know, its decisions take precedence over parliamentary law. And there are certainly some people who think that's the issue that matters. I'm not sure that's what fuels the populism. Thank you to Helen, Aaron, Finbar and Chris, to our special guest, Jeremy Cliff, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Please visit our website to hear more about Cambridge in Europe, including interviews with students who've been trying to raise consciousness about the issues of the referendum in local schools. Next week, our guest is the leading American polling analyst and political commentator Sean Trend from Real Clear Politics. And he'll tell us about the latest developments in the primary election campaigns and some of the long-term patterns in American society that underpin them. Where do Donald Trump supporters come from? And who are they? Join us next week to find out more. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Election. Election.